Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, will you follow me to 1 Timothy? 1 Timothy. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11 in just a bit by way of introduction into our sermon text today. So, as you know, we have started our series on God's law, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Last week, we laid the foundation, or well, week before last, we laid the foundation of why it is that the law is still relevant. Because after all, we came through the book of Romans, right? And Paul reminded us very clearly in Romans chapter 3 that there's not one person who is going to be made righteous through the works of the law. As a matter of fact, he reminded us of why that is because there's not one person apart from the regenerative work of Jesus Christ who could ever hope to keep the law. The law is there to show us our depravity, right? We look into the mirror of the law and we see how overwhelmingly sinful we are as opposed to the righteous character of God that is displayed in the moral code. So why is it, we said, that we ought to even consider studying the law? Well, that same author in the same book reminded us in Romans chapter 8 that, hey, those who walk according to the Spirit, in other words, those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, now you will be able to see in you, because the Holy Spirit resides in you, you will be able to see in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, I believe it is, the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in you. So what's the implication? Paul is reminding us that the law is still relevant. While we're, we're not under the guilt of the law anymore, we're not under the bondage of sin that the law revealed to us anymore, but the law is still relevant to us because it demonstrates for us the righteous character of God and how God has always intended for us to live. And so, with the regenerative work of Christ and the Holy Spirit working in our life to sanctify us, to conform our minds, to change our minds, uh, then we can begin for the first time to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And then Paul reminds us what the ultimate fulfillment of the law is in Romans chapter 13. You remember that? He says, at the end, or kind of middle ways through that chapter, he says, oh, no one anything except to love them. And then he says, if you will love them, then you will fulfill the law. Why? Because the law is fulfilled in this saying that you love your neighbor as yourself. And then he lists out three or four of the commandments that are on the second tablet of the law. So what is the implication that Paul is reminding us about there? 
That again, the law is relevant to our lives now. It is binding on all of humanity. It is the reason that every mouth is stopped and every human being is found guilty before God. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we can, for the first time in our life, begin to understand what it means to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the first four commandments, and love our neighbor as we love ourselves, the second a group of six commandments that God gave to Moses and Israel at Sinai. And that law has been written on every human being's heart. Didn't Paul tell us that? Even among the Gentiles, he told to the Jews who God, whom God gave the law to. He says, what about these Gentiles? Whenever they who did not have the law or didn't receive it like you, in fact, live in light of the law, are they not a law unto themselves? And what's the implication? That law's been written on their heart. This law's been written on the heart of humanity. And it is what convicts us or convinces us in our, in our rightness or our wrongness. So the law is, in fact, relevant today. And far too long, we as believers and we as uh, evangelicals in the modern era have been far too antinomian. We've, we've been to that place where we have opposed the law. And we ought not to. Why? Because you remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 7? He said the law is good and holy and just. Well, who else is good and holy and just? Well, the lawgiver is good and holy and just. And so that law reflected his character. So it is important for we as believers to understand the significance of the God's moral code in our life today and how we ought to go about interpreting that. And that's what leads us to 1 Timothy chapter 1 because Paul reminds Timothy of the significance of the moral code and that there's a proper way to understand and use the moral code in our lives today and in culture today. And we need to lay the foundwork today in this second sermon by way of introduction to the Ten Commandments, how it is we ought to understand and interpret the law. And so that's what we aim to do today. So walk with me, if you will, through these first 11 verses in Timothy so that we can get to uh, our, our sermon and understand these rules for interpreting the Ten Commandments, which will guide us over the next several weeks as we begin to engage each one of uh, the commandments over in Exodus chapter, chapter 20. So we're going to begin in uh, verse 3. In verse 3, Paul says to Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now you need to underline, circle, highlight, or at least make a mental note of that phrase in your mind or in your Bible, because we're going to see how significant that is as it relates to the law in just a moment. So there are those in the church who are teaching a different doctrine. And Paul is telling Timothy, hey, you need to remain there and you need to challenge those who are teaching this doctrine. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so in other words, they're going off the road, the rails again. 
uh, by leaving the heart of the gospel behind and following after these, you know, genealogies and myths and things like that that are leading people astray. And he says this underlying foundational principle, look what he says. These things are opposite of, are not part of the foundation of God, which comes from faith. The implication is this is that faith in Christ through the gospel message that we have believed what, who Christ is and what he came to do as it relates to redemption. And then he goes on to say in verse five, the aim of our charge is love. Circle that, highlight it, underline it, make a mental note of it. What is the fundamental aspect of the fulfillment of the Decalogue, God's moral law? Well, it is love. Isn't that what Paul told us? If you will love, then you have fulfilled the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So at the foundation of this and the aim of this is this idea of the Christian ethic of love, godly love, which is demonstrated for us in the moral code. How are we to love God? He tells us in the first four commandments. How are we to demonstrate that we love God and that God loves us? Well, he tells us in the second table on the six commandments that remain as we love our neighbor by ourselves, for, as ourselves. So it goes on in verse five again. The aim of our charge is love. That issue from a pure heart. Well, how do we get a pure heart? Are we born with a pure heart? No. We get a pure heart because God gives us a pure heart, right? That's regeneration. That's salvation. That's Christ in us, right? He removes the heart of stone and he puts into us that heart of flesh. He transforms us. So uh, the issue is from, this issue is from a, from a pure heart and a good conscience. Well, how do we have this good conscience? It is aligned with the law of God. That is the thing that God has put within us that is our conscience that condemns us or convicts us or it encourages us in our faithfulness and a sincere faith. So you see how all of this is linked together? Paul is not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? He's saying that all of this sound doctrine, how we ought to live, this faith ultimately is pictured for us and it emanates from the character of God. And you and I understand the character of God and how it is we ought to live in light of the mirror of the law, which reflects who God is and how he intends for us to live in this world. Then he goes on verse six. Certain persons by swerving from these, so again, they've gone off the rails, have wandered away into vain discussions. And so... When he's saying they're going off the rail by these vain discussions, he's saying the heart of what we ought to be is the foundation of the gospel and the guardrails for our living are the moral code of God. And then he goes on to say, uh, verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law. So he hadn't left that idea that the law is still relevant and still important. Without understanding either what they are saying or what things ought to about which they may uh, make confident assertions. 
So they want to teach the law, but they're going off to the rail because they don't have proper understanding. And then Paul makes this declaration in verse 8 and 9. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for those uh, for, for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the immoral and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, don't miss that. You remember over there in verse 3, I had you underline, circle, or highlight, or make note in your mind this sound doctrine or this different doctrine. Well, Paul just puts a book in on all of that for us. How is it that they know what is sound doctrine and if they're straying from it? What did Paul just list for us? He essentially listed for us in that vice list we just read the commandments that are on the second tablet of the law. So what is Paul saying? Sound doctrine, the guardrails for that, in some way, in some manner, are, are laid out by the moral code of God. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, as it reflects the character of God. And it demonstrates for us God's grace and God's mercy. And don't think because Paul said that in this verse that this is not laid out for the just but the unjust, that he means that the law has no, nothing to say to the just. Well, that would be contrary to everything he's just said in the book of Romans, wouldn't it? Because in Romans, he's made it clear to us that the law is still relevant in our life, and it has something to say to us about how we ought to live our life. What Paul is saying to them is we need to have proper understanding about how we go about using and interpreting and applying the law to our life. And so that is ultimately the goal of today is to help us to come to this place where we can have some guidelines to help us have understanding. Now, I didn't finish the, the passage. We'll read verse 11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And don't think, look, Paul rounds it all out. It's all linked together, isn't it? Now, again, don't come away from here saying that the preacher is saying we got to do the law to be righteous. No, absolutely not. You can't be righteous by doing the law. You can only do the law because God has made you righteous in Christ Jesus. But it is the law that demonstrates for us the character of God and demonstrates for us how we flesh out the holy character of God in this world. And in that sense, it is still binding on us. And so we need to understand how to properly interpret the law and use it in our lives. So we're going we're gonna to unpack that idea with six main headings. I'm not going to give you all the headings up front. We'll get them as we go, okay? Very quickly. We've got 28 minutes. One, we need to understand if we're going to properly interpret God's law and use God's law today in our lives as believers... We need to properly understand God's law is perfect, right? Nothing has changed about God's law. It is absolutely perfect. Do you think that because Jesus came and died on the cross that God still does not want us to adhere to the Ten Commandments? 
The moral code. Do you think because Jesus came and brought redemption apart from these works that God is no longer in favor of thou shalt not murder? Do you think that what Jesus did nullifies God's opinion on thou shalt not steal or commit adultery? Absolutely not. Because God's law is perfect. And Jesus came and said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And he did. He was the first human being, I get it, holy God, completely God, but also completely man. He was the first man to ever live the law perfectly. He did what you and I could not do. But that does not negate the fact that God's law remains perfect. Listen to, to Psalm 19 with me. Psalm 19, 79, or 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. That's where we, we've got to live. The law is perfect because the lawgiver is perfect. And God has not wavered in his character one iota. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Listen uh, to Psalm 119, uh, 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. The law is perfect because God is perfect. His rules are righteous. His law is righteous because he is righteous. And if we abandon the law, then we have abandoned the lawgiver. Romans 7, 12, you've heard me quote this one already today. Paul said, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so if we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, and find out what is pleasing to the Lord, where do you think we could start finding out what is pleasing to the Lord? Maybe it would be from his perfect, holy, righteous, just law, which demonstrates his character. God's law is perfect. That's where we got to start. And if we'll hold on to that, we'll hold on to the fact that the lawgiver is perfect. And we can trust him in what he's called us to do. And then secondly, we need to understand that the law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. Romans chapter 7 verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. You see how smart I am, right? I didn't even have to come up with that. God's word told me that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh sold under sin. So Paul is saying, hey, I need help because I can't do spiritual things apart from God in me, changing me. But this idea of the law is spiritual. What was Jesus's beef 
with the, the, the religious leaders of his day. Because listen, he said to those who were following after him, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. What was he saying to them? Why did he say that to them? What had the religious leaders of that day done to the law of God? They had perverted the law of God. They had limited the law of God and the impact of the law of God on their life to merely outward expressions of sinfulness. Right? They had not considered, as Jesus said, the weightier matters of the law, which are spiritual. Because Jesus reminded them that Sin doesn't start with the hands. Sin starts in the inner man, in the inner person, right? That's why Jesus would correct them. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus wasn't abandoning the law or saying that it was wrong. He was correcting their misunderstanding of the significance of the moral code of God. When he would say to them, you have heard it said to you, right? about adultery. But Jesus said, but I say to you, if you look on a person, specifically he said a woman, with lust, then you're guilty of adultery. What was he telling? See, that all, well, you remember, uh, uh, Dan White says his favorite passage that was never, that, that's not in the Bible, uh, the Pricope Adultery. Uh, I think it's John chapter 7, 8. The woman caught in adultery when they brought that woman to Jesus. It was all about the physical that had happened, right? And in that story, what did Jesus do? He pointed to the inner man because he says to them, he who it is among you who have not sinned, you cast the first stone. They may not have committed the physical act of adultery, right? But they were all guilty, just like all of us are guilty. The same thing with murder, right? Those Pharisees, they may not have ever murdered any person, taken a person's life. But Jesus said to them, listen, if you have hated your brother without cause, you are guilty as if you had committed murder. You see, Jesus was saying, it's all about the inner man. What's on the inside will manifest itself on the outside. So the law is spiritual in that it starts in here. Sin starts in here. I get it. When we read the second table of the law, hey, five out of the six speak specifically to physical action. But there's one, the last one, the tenth, you shall not covet. It's all about the inner man, Right? Because that's where covetousness is. It's in the heart. And what Jesus was trying to point out to these people, and what he's trying to point out to us, is that all sin starts here. Every bit of it. Murder starts in here. And we're going to unpack that as we go through the Ten Commandments. So the law in that sense is not just merely physical. It is spiritual. And that leads us to... Rule number three. 
The law is exceedingly broad. Exceedingly broad. Let me show you how smart I am again. Uh, Psalm 119.96. I have seen a limit of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. And what is the Bible trying to tell us about this idea? That God's law, law is exceedingly broad. Well, here's our problem, I think, with the Ten Commandments. Is we look at the Ten Commandments and we'll say, thou shalt not commit adultery. And we'll say, done, that's it. Never done it, right? Well, what we need to understand is, and I heard Phil Johnson put it this way. He didn't come up with this, but he borrowed it from someone else. But it's this big word, synecdoche, all right? I watched a movie that had a spelling bee on it one time, and that was a word they used in there. Uh, but synecdoche has to do with this idea of one part of something represents the whole. This is how Phil Johnson dis- defined it, and it made sense to me. And it, it, you young people will understand this, okay, because you don't talk like this anymore. But some of the older will, right? Because at one time we'd say, hey, uh, maybe in the 50s or whatever, I got a new set of wheels, well, what do we mean when we said we got a new set of wheels? We got a new car, right? We didn't mean that we just got wheels to go on our old car. We got a new car, right? Now, even y'all won't even understand this because in my day, we, when we talked about shoes, right, it was, I think one term was kicks, right? Got some new kicks, right? So, but, but synecdoche is not like that, but it's about those, when we say we got a new set of wheels, we were talking about the entirety of the car, right? So when God's law says adultery, it's not limited to that one particular sin. It is a category that um, under, an, uh, under which the rest of the sins that are sexual find themselves. You understand? When he talks about adultery, all sexual sin is, is under the umbrella of adultery. And we'll flesh that out as we go through the Ten Commandments. And so you and I need to understand in that way... God's law is exceedingly broad because every manner of sexual sin is incorporated in the, in the commandment against adultery. And the same thing with thou shalt not bear false witness. Every aspect of deception and, and bringing uh, a false understanding or of a person's name and reputation are all under the umbrella of not bearing false witness. And again, we'll unpack all of those things as, as we go. Listen to what Matthew Henry said uh, in explanation of this idea. The divine law lays a restraint upon the whole man in designed to sanctify us wholly. There is a great deal required and forbidden in every commandment. And we'll unpack that as we go through the Ten Commandments. And we need to understand that. As we've already said in our first introductory sermon, when you, if you read Exodus chapter 20 and you get to the end of the Ten Commandments that are listed there, I think it ends in verse 17, and you continue to read, what does God begin to do? He begins to unpack for them every category of sin that is related to the Ten Commandments that he just gave them. And every aspect of the law comes under the umbrella of some aspect or some, one of these commandments. 
When you read Deuteronomy, when you read Exodus, you read Leviticus, every aspect of the law that God lays out for Israel comes under the heading or category found in one of these ten that he gave on Mount Sinai. So God's law is exceedingly broad. Then fourthly, the law has both positive and negative connotations. In other words, there are positive declarations You ought to do these things, and you ought not do these things. And what we're going to find is where there is a positive declaration of doing something, there is also a negative declaration that is either explicit or latent or hidden in there that we ought not do. And so probably the best way to illustrate that to you is from the Westminster Longer Catechism. And I don't know if anybody's ever read that or read it lately. You ought to, right? You ought to. I I get it. It, it, It's highly reformed in its theology as it relates to soteriology. And and you can deal with that. If if we are astute students of God's word, students of theology, which all of us are. Everyone in here is a theologian. Did you know that? Everybody in here is a theologian. Because you're going to make a theological statement at some point in your life, right? I, I responded to something just yesterday that uh, Rick Warren had put out regarding the things that are going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. By the way, be in prayer for that. Uh, next week, Denise and I will leave after church Sunday to go to New Orleans and, and be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention as it relates to, uh, you know, uh, the decisions specifically that are happening now. But anyway, he, he wrote an open letter to, to folks, and uh, part of that had to do uh, with this idea of not Baptists not being a creedal people. And he made this statement that we have all grown up with this idea that we have one book, the Bible, and we have no creeds but Christ. Well, you know what the only problem with that statement is? Well, it is a creed, right? When you say you're not creedal, and then you make a statement like that, you just said, this is my creed, right? So we we can't get away from that. Historically, Baptists have been creedal people. Historically, it probably wasn't too many years ago, somewhere in this church, you know, 140 some odd years, right? Somewhere in this church, the Apostle Creed probably used to hang on a wall. And in most Baptist churches, the Apostles' Creed was read every Sunday, right? We all are creedal people in some way. And, and so that, the point I'm, I don't even know why I said that now. <laughs> the point I'm getting at is uh, we, we have foundations. We have theological foundations that we we all hold to, right? And we need to, be, we need to be able to understand that. All of us have them. And so we need to be students of theology, and we need to be able to weed out things that are not theologically sound, right? Maybe that's where I was going with this thing. All of us in that sense are theologians. So we need to be people who read these kinds of things, and even if we don't disagree with everything that's in there, throw out the things that you don't agree with, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, as we already said, right? Hold on to those things that are right and true. And so here are some things I think that are right and true as it relates to this positive and negative aspect of God's law. Uh, And so this idea of the negative side, things that are forbidden, uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 139 says, what are sins forbidden in the seventh uh, commandment? And this is the commandment against adultery. It says, adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, all unnatural lust, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections. 
Now, our problem is when we read the Ten Commandments, we, we don't go that far. We just stop at the physical act. And that was the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What you and I need to understand is everything that might lead up to and everything that is contrary to God's created order as it relates to sexuality is sinful. That's why we can speak to all of these things. And that's why it's ludicrous in our society when they say the Bible doesn't speak specifically to, specifically to these issues that we're facing today in society. Or Jesus didn't speak specifically to these things that relate to society. Because God's word is clear. The created order, God's design, was designed a specific way as it relates to humanity, creation, marriage, and sex. And Jesus didn't sway from that. After all, he was the one there at creation, right? And so all of those things are encompassed in that. Then he goes on, uh, the, the question number 136. What is forbidden in the sixth commandment? Sinful anger, that's thou shalt not murder. Sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire for revenge, and all excessive passions. So all of those things that lead up to the actual physical act are also forbidden in these commandments. That's why we say that God's law is exceedingly broad because what we have in the Ten Commandments touches the surface. It is a category under which all sins of like kind fall. Then what are the duties? Here, here's some ways that duties are, are, are looked at in that way, in this broad kind of way. Uh, the Ninth Commandment, uh, 143, question 143. The ninth commandment is, thou shalt not bear false witness, all right? Don't, don't lie, is what we say. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Here, listen to the answer to, in 144. What are the duties required in the ninth commandment? To preserve and promote, uh, promoting of truth between man and man, well, humanity to humanity, preserving and promoting our good name and our neighbor's good name. So we want to honor the reputation of our neighbor, Right? In every way. A charitable esteem for our neighbor. Loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name. Well, we have to say, woe is me, right? Because there's probably not a one of us in some way at some time who has probably said, I hope they get what they deserve, right? I hope that their name becomes mud. When the Bible teaches us part of not bearing false witness is the positive side of hoping for, praying for, working toward the good name and reputation, not just of ourselves, but of our neighbor. You see how wide and how broad the commandments of God are. And I'd venture to say that we haven't thought about that. We haven't thought about the law that way. As a matter of fact, how often do we even hear a sermon on the law of God? Well, we're changing that now, at least for us. All right, number five, the preeminence of the first table of the law. The preeminence of the first table of the law. What does that mean? First table of the law, in summary, Jesus, Matthew 22, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't have any God, other gods before him, right? Don't make any graved images. Uh, honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. The other 
tablet of the law. You know, honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Right? Don't covet. Don't steal. So what does it mean when we think about the preeminence of the first tablet of the law? Here's an example of that. When we are commanded in the fifth commandment to honor our father and our mother, what we're going to find out in that commandment is that specifically father and mother, but in general, remember the broadness of the law? The broadness of that law is those who are in authority over us, those who are our elder, those who are in authority over us. We ought to honor all of those kinds of people. And that's why I think it was Elisha, called Elijah, father. That was the mindset, okay? And so that includes magistrates, people in authority above us, Romans chapter 13, because God has established them as leaders, as rulers, to function as his emissary on planet Earth. Well, they don't always do that rightly, right? They don't. So here's how this ties into this idea of the preeminence of the first tablet. The first tablet is our relationship with God. It ought to supersede our relationship with humanity when what our relationship with humanity says puts us at odds with God. And here's what we learn in the New Testament when uh, the disciples, Peter, Peter and John maybe, it was, uh, uh, that were arrested, you remember? And they were commanded never to preach or teach in Jesus' name again. And what did they say to those who were in authority above them? They said, are we to obey God or man? Right? And so that's where you and I need to understand that when, when those who are in authority or when the second table of the law puts us in this position that we become at odds with God, we must side with God first and foremost, right? And when we always side with God, we will always be right. So in that sense, the first table of the law takes preeminence. We must always side with God when we are at odds in other places. And then that leads us finally in the last few minutes we have. And really, we've talked about this before, so we'll, we'll do it in summation the law of love, the beginning and the end of the precepts of God is love. That's what fulfills God's law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now the question is, how do we know what it looks like to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, God's given us exactly what it looks like in the Ten Commandments, right? He gave us four commandments that speak specifically to what it looks like to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And remember, the law is exceedingly broad. And so we will unpack to the best of our ability every aspect of what it looks like to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as summarized by the first four commandments. And what does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, God's given us a pretty good picture of that in the last six commandments on the second tablet of the law, right? 
And so we will unpack as we go through the Ten Commandments what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, as you honor your father and mother, as you don't commit murder, as you don't commit adultery, as you don't steal, right? As you don't bear false witness, as you don't covet. We'll unpack what that looks like in everyday life for you and for me. And I think when we come to the end of that, we'll see exactly how God's character is manifest in his law and how that is still important to us because we've been called to live in light of the holiness of God, haven't we? What did Peter tell us? Quoting from the Old Testament, from Leviticus, I believe, be holy for I am holy. Well, how do I know what God's holiness looks like? Well, he's given me a pretty good picture of that in the Ten Commandments, right? And I need to live in light of that, understanding that God holds me to a standard of living. As one who represents him on planet Earth, he calls me to live in light of the redemption that he has bestowed upon me, the righteousness of Christ that he has bestowed upon me. What do we think that's going to look like when God sanctifies us and conforms us to the image of Christ who fulfilled the law? Well, it it might reflect that, hadn't it? In how we treat God and and relate to God and how we treat one another and relate to one another. And so, maybe here's the invitation for you today. And you can come and be ready. Maybe, Maybe here's the invitation for you today. Do you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, if you answer absolutely yes to that, then you probably definitely need to come to the altar because there's not a one of us who can completely and wholly love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength this side of glory, right? Why? What did Paul tell us? You remember Romans chapter 7? With the inner man, with the heart, I long after... The, the law of God, the things of God. But in this flesh, I still have the desires towards sinfulness. That's our life. But the real heart of the question I'm getting at is, do, is your desire to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Have you been redeemed today? Because that's the only way that will become your desire is if you've been redeemed by Christ. If you haven't, then that's the invitation for you today. Maybe you're a a believer today. Maybe you're a Christian. The same question is still relevant. Where Where is it in your life that you are not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And it won't take us too long to find that place if we just think about it in all of our lives. Ask God to help us become better in those areas of weakness. And then maybe a follow up question. Are you loving your neighbor as you love yourself? How are you treating your fellow man? And that starts, who's your closest neighbor? Well, if you're married, it's your spouse, your husband, or your wife, your children, your family. And then it goes out from there. Maybe today you're a Christian. Maybe God, you need to ask God to open up your heart and say, Lord, 
Show me how I'm not loving my neighbor like I ought to. And help me to be better at that. Right? So whatever it is that God's asked you to do or whatever he's spoken to you about today, you just be obedient to him. And, and again, nothing magical about this altar. There is something magical about being obedient to God. So if God says to you, I need you to go kneel, well then do that. Don't worry. Hey, like we learned in Jeremiah today, don't worry about their faces, right? Don't worry about what anybody else says about you or around you. This is about you and God, right? You and God. You just be obedient to him today. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this time you've given us, the opportunity we've had to be in your word. And Lord, as always, I feel as though I didn't do an adequate job to express the truth of your word. And, and I'll never be able to do that until I see you face to face. But I trust, Lord, that you will be true to your word, that it will never come back void, that it will always accomplish that which you send it out to do. And so today I, I entrust you. Uh, with the message and trust you with the hearts of those who heard and who will hear so that you will do what is right in their life. You will draw them where they need to be drawn. You'll convict them where they need to be convicted. And that everything that is said and done will bring glory and honor to your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.